Welcome back to One Decision. I'm Vivian Salama, your guest co-host for today. I'm joined today by Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of the British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, for an extraordinary discussion about Dr. Igor Luksic, former prime minister of Montenegro, and a decision that he made that's helped shape the world. Sir Richard, great to be with you. Vivian, very pleased to join you, and I look forward to our discussion. There's a lot of material yeah, relevant to the present moment. Well, there's no shortage of things to discuss these days, especially in the world of national security and intelligence. Absolutely. Hi, Prime Minister. How are you? Hi, how are you, Vivian? Mr. Prime Minister, thank you for joining us. It's really an honor to talk to you. And obviously, it's been a very eventful couple of months in your neck of the woods. And so we have a lot to talk about. And you, of course, have served as Montenegro's fourth prime minister from 2010 to 2012. You also served as foreign minister and a number of other roles you had, including your entering role as secretary general for the Regional Cooperation Council this year, among a number of other things. I want to turn our discussion, probably focus largely on some of the events taking place in Eastern Europe right now. The stakes are quite high this time for the U.S., along with its NATO allies, which are looking to prevent another Russian invasion of Ukraine. Of course, Montenegro became the 29th member of NATO back in 2017. And so your country is very much involved in a lot of these discussions um, to prevent any kind of invasion. Uh, obviously, the situation is serious and, and 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 complicated, and it's been so for the for the, for, for any number of years, uh, going back to uh, the invasion of Crimea back in 2015, when Montenegro was not yet a uh, member state of of uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the of, of NATO, and again the complexity of Ukrainian situation. I have to say, I cannot resist by draw some parallels and. Uh, and, and talk also about the complex, complexity of the Montenegrin situation because of historical background, because of uh, relationship with Serbia, because of uh, 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 Russia being, you know, for many centuries, a big Slavic uh, brother who was there to protect small uh, Slavic brothers from the Balkan region against the Turkish Empire or Austro-Hungarians or whoever was important player at what time. And it was, it was, uh, it, it, there are so many, uh, uh, I think, parallels that one can draw uh, between, between uh, uh, two, two situations. Uh, of course, uh, the invasion of, of Crimea was the game changer because it put everybody on, a, on an alert, put everybody on a different, uh, you know, narrative because uh, you, you don't just like that violate international principles, where at the same time, uh, international law principles, where at the same time you call upon all those principles uh, when you when you defend your position either within the UN uh, uh, Security Council or, or OSCE European Security uh, Umbrella and and so on and so on. That's why I mean uh, uh, the, the, the not only because of the security situation, but it's also uh, uh, economic impact and and repercussions in many different fields. We, we all uh, really hope that uh, the discussion between the two will be uh, uh, more substantial and would lead into some some something which is uh, uh, very concrete. Uh, again, going back to the situation in which we were as uh, an aspiring uh, NATO member, so so a couple of years before we we got the invitation, 
you know, uh, many eyes were turned to Montenegro and how we would behave, uh, uh, you know, ahead of uh, the decision of the EU, or actually uh, in the wake of the decision of EU to introduce sanctions against Russia. Uh, Montenegro was put in uh, what was to many people an impossible situation where you need to choose between uh, your uh, uh, future and your alignment with the EU foreign policy. And by that point in time, we had had 100% alignment on all international issues. And, you know, uh, on the other side, uh, many people were like, well, but you see, uh, there is economic interest, uh, there is historical background, it's so complicated. How can we explain that to many of our people, many uh, of our population who actually still see Russia in in uh, in some but uh, through some particular uh, lens, let's put it that way. And Montenegro was put in a very, as you say, the very awkward position between the EU and Russia at that point. And Russia is accused of being behind an attempted coup in 2016 against Prime Minister Milo Djukanovic, among other things. Exactly, exactly. That that came came afterwards uh, as sort of a uh, you know a reaction. Uh, including uh, because of our decision to to, to introduce uh, sanctions and and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, relentlessly continue uh, our road towards membership into the NATO, and that that was a very interesting uh, period of time, uh, uh, a very interesting sequence. Let's put it that way. As uh, again, uh, you know, uh, talking to many ambassadors of the EU and so on, we kept receiving the same message: "Listen, now is the time. We know it's complicated, but you need to." Take your decisions, and uh, it—that's it. I mean, uh, and you know, it, what was, was the big takeaway of that? You say that there are lessons learned. What were those lessons that Montenegro learned during that period? Well, I, I think that that you you don't. I think the main takeaway is that you actually do not, you know, play with with uh, your uh, uh, key. Uh, uh, key ambitions, key goals, key uh, 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 principles. And uh, for us, since regaining independence and since passing a declaration of independence, it was about European and Euro-Atlantic integration process. And here and there, uh, we had different uh, and difficult decisions to take. But I think uh, it was, in, in all of those situations, it was relatively easy because we knew that without taking those difficult situations, there wouldn't be you know, any progress towards uh, 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 membership into the NATO or, or eventually membership into, into the EU. Because on this one, it was about aligning ourselves with EU, and it was not really aligning ourselves with, with NATO. So at many times, uh, and when key decisions were taken, both of those go. I mean, you, you, you kind of the, those, the, those decisions straddle between the two because it's it's very much uh, aligned between the two. Interestingly enough, there were a lot of people, uh, not only the opposition, but you know some NGOs, the church, and so on, who actually opposed anything that Montenegro might do to uh, to uh, you know confront Russia because historically it has been very important benefactor to Montenegro and so on and so on. And, I mean that that's true to 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 uh, uh, to a big extent because especially throughout the 19th century, uh, Russia was uh, yeah you know, kind of a guarantor of of the Montenegrins de facto independence. The Jure we won it in Berlin in 1878, but in in, in between 
that was Russia very important guarantee. One of the biggest grievances that President Putin has repeatedly stated is the extension of U.S. and NATO military exercises and other activities into Ukraine. He sees those activities as crossing a red line. But the U.S. and NATO, first and foremost, believe that they're supporting an ally. Second, they believe that those reinforcements were what was missing in 2014 when Crimea was invaded. Why do you think President Putin believes that this so-called red line has been violated? And how do you navigate around that situation. I mean, uh, it, I think it's going to be very hard to uh, build consensus of a further expansion of NATO. Uh, Montenegro joined in 2017, as you mentioned, and then following uh, the very difficult and decades-long problem uh, North Macedonia uh, had with with Greece mm-hmm. after that uh, having been resolved, uh, uh, North Macedonia was also admitted. But I think both of us, both uh, North Macedonia and Montenegro, were in a way in a different position, being on the Western Balkans, being still a little bit far off from from uh, you know uh, Russia being your uh, uh, immediate uh, uh, neighbor and so on made things a lot lot more uh, uh, different. Uh, when you talk about Ukraine, uh, Ukraine or, or Georgia, uh, which uh, uh, has been in a similar situation uh, with their problem with Abkhazia and South Ossetia that took place in 2008, uh, it, one, can, one can say again, one, one can draw parallels again uh, with that, that situation with, with the Donetsk, Donetsk region or, or, or I mean, Crimea is, is most uh, uh, evident or, 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 or example of it. But uh, I think given the, the existence of frozen conflicts, so to speak, in those uh, countries which aspire to be or, or would like to become member states of NATO, I think creates a lot of um, uh, ambivalence uh, within, uh, within, within NATO uh, due to... The different different reasons. Uh, one of the obvious reasons is that uh, I mean, uh, Russia is is uh, uh, in security wise, it's it's still a, a giant. Uh, their economy may not be that uh, you know uh, heavy loaded. I mean, their economy is somewhere like the Italy's, uh, uh, but their that re- that the country is vast and uh, uh, nuclear power and so on and so on. And plus, economic interests have also been very much present. Uh, uh, and traditional economic links uh, between some of the uh, Europe con- Europe's countries and, and Russia have always been very strong. And you know, democracy operates through a, a myriad of networks, which is not only direct or the indirect representation through your, uh, you know, uh, uh, senators or congressmen or, or congresswomen or whatever. It's also interest groups that that uh, behave in their own interests and uh, it's it's always it's always very complicated so honestly i'm not sure whether that consensus can be built especially if um, if this uh, you know if if uh, security concerns uh, uh, going are going to grow uh, and I, I don't think that anybody's uh, uh, interest after after seeing several 21st century examples of uh, military interventions and the follow-up, I don't think that anybody's 
particularly interested in in going into you know military adventures so i th- i think that uh, many would rather opt for alternative uh, uh, mechanisms you know economic sanctions and uh, stuff like that but again uh, the, the, there is also a very fine fine line you need to you need to walk between uh, what are um, uh, geopolitical or security issues and economic impact or economic repercussions and th- those vested interests and so on and so on one of the things that the Biden administration keeps talking about is deterrence, and it's partially a reflection from the lessons that they learned in 2014, keeping in mind that President Biden was vice president at the time, and also many of his top advisors in the administration were around him then and lived through the crisis. And so they keep saying now that they're trying to do more in advance of an escalation, in advance of an invasion, including threats of sanctions, including military support for Ukraine. And so do you see any of this working so far to deter President Putin? Or do you think that his ambitions with regard to Ukraine go beyond what the EU and the US and NATO can really do? Well, I think as as a matter of principle, I think that approach makes sense. Um, You know, in in 2014, uh, when there was a lot of uh, discussion about, uh, you know, uh, uh, marking 100 years since the beginning of the First World War, uh, which started in the Balkans, and uh, uh, and uh, the uh, the same year when also when, when also Crimea happened and, and and so on, the the there was a lot of uh, talk about uh, the need to take a different approach for what was, for example, uh, lessons of of uh, uh, the First World War, even of the First World War. Let's put it that, that let's put it that way. And because once it es- escalates. As you know, it's it's terribly complicated. So, so the, the, I, the, I mean, let, let's see if if it will work, and let's see if the whole strategy has been uh, kind of uh, put in put into to, put together, but a little bit uh, already a little bit late. Because would, would you expect would, would would you wait until mass uh, military uh, 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 has been? Uh, placed uh, along the border with ukraine or shouldn't you have uh, already you know done some 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 uh, 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 some act- uh, activity or tr- try to work out some some approach if if we're talking about this deterrence before it escalates because one can argue that even even putting so many uh, 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 so, such a big army along the border is already escalation so what's the next step? Next step is, is uh, you know, uh, obvious. Uh, is it is the next step obvious intervention or invasion? So, the, the, I mean, the, one, one can take different uh, different views over this, but I think as long as uh, people are talking, that's good. I mean, to ask a blunt question, do you think President Putin views capturing Donbass as unfinished business for him? Is it part of his legacy? Uh, well, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure uh, because I think uh, 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 what uh, probably President Putin would would uh, 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 prefer is having the whole Ukraine under Moscow's <laughs> I can't say rule, but under Moscow's clear influence uh, or something like that. Because, Fair point. Uh, because you remember what, at one point he said that one of the geostrategic catastrophe was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, 
actually he is obviously he is he he views himself as as uh, 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 you know probably on, on equal terms as as uh, where peter the you would put peter the great or catherine the great or 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 tsar uh, alexander the first and so on uh someone who's been around for already you know 20 plus years uh who mm-hmm. intends to stay on board for another decade let's put it that way and and he's probably thinking towards well uh i uh, my historical role is to you know uh build back what we've been uh, make sure that we don't lose what we've been building uh, for for last you know uh, 5 or 600 years uh, uh, or 1000 years as he says uh, uh, despite whatever historical ambiguities we, but we don't have enough time for that so so i i in my view he is he, it's it's actually even more complicated than pure transactional aspect of whether i'm happy with just chopping off part of or piece of ukraine or chopping off piece of whatever georgia or this and that you see what i mean Absolutely. One of the issues that keeps coming up in my conversations with U.S. officials is Russia's two-pronged approach, at least their concern of Russia's two-pronged approach to this conflict. On the one hand, the potential for using energy and gas specifically as a weapon, and secondly, the weaponization of migrants. Talk a little bit about these two issues. Is it a concern for Montenegro as well as Europe more broadly? Well, as far as Montenegro is concerned, well, not that much. Uh, uh, I don't think we've been on on on. I mean, we 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 see migrants here and there, but since 2015 and and that large migrant crisis, I can't say that we've been uh, so much affected by it. Uh, uh, and and the same accounts for for energy. Uh, I mean, when I say energy, I mean oil and gas in particular. Because most of the Europe is actually very much frightened by the the fact that any deterioration of relationship between Europe and and Russia may actually lead into terribly high gas prices, something we've we've actually already we have already seen, uh, and and stuff like that. Because Europe has not yet been able to end up energy transition, and and uh, uh, move away. Uh, substantially from either coal-based uh, or, or of other or gas-based uh, economies, and there is still a few more decades to 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 walk uh, to or, or to 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 make sure that uh, that Europe is is has has accomplished this the, the, the talked about energy tra- transition. So, but in case of Montenegro, we're not that concerned because most of our energy comes from electricity. And uh, we are actually on the road to make use of uh, alternative renewables, such as the solar, which is gaining uh, a lot of uh, uh, prominence uh, these days, or, or wind and so on. And being a small country where energy consumption is also very important, it's been growing. But I think we have, uh, we have uh, 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 options that do not put us at any uh, you know, uh, complicated situations. Uh, but I mean, our immediate neighbors like Serbia, they may uh, suffer to a certain extent. And uh, I mean, let us not mention other countries. Uh, the, 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 the more Eastern you are, the more the more uh, 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 dependent 
you are. And that that's really very big problem. Another issue that's come up quite a bit, and the administration, the White House has said numerous times, is that they're becoming more keenly aware of Russia's use of disinformation, as well as its election interferences to destabilize countries around the world, but particularly those in its backyard. Montenegro has definitely had experience with this. If you could talk a little bit about what you learned through those experiences Mm. and how that reflects on the situation in Ukraine, as well as other countries around the world. Yeah, well, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, even the United States uh, uh, have witnessed that uh, and at, at full speed, so to speak, when mm, when absolutely. The, the meddling into the electoral process was was later on discovered. But it's not only only United States; other countries that belong to traditional democracies, Western liberal democracy, democracies suffered from from that that sort of the interference and. We're talking about countries which have, uh, you know, sustained democracies for uh, already a couple of centuries. Uh, 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 and can you imagine then how fragile the systems of new democracies are? Because, you know, don't forget that Montenegro has been very, very new democracy. And despite the fact we were independent in the 19th century all along until 1918, when we were submerged uh, under Serbia and then joined uh, the first uh, Yugoslav kingdom, uh, we were really never democracy before before uh, 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 setting up the new uh, new Montenegrin independent uh, nation. And so we're talking about past past couple of decades. So there is a lot to learn uh, for us, but there is also a lot to catch up. Uh, to make sure that uh, we are resilient, because resilience to me equals uh, quality of institutions. And unless institutions, uh, and, and when, when talking about institutions, I'm also referring to checks and balances within the system. We, we, I'm referring not only to formal rules which are stipulated in your constitution, it's also spirit of democracy. It's also informal rule of law. Uh, the uh, rules that you, one needs to obey to, to develop political culture. So we are still not there yet, and we still have to, you know, invest a lot of efforts to, to get there, so, so, so to speak. So, so if, if we're talking about, I mean, such fragile countries, then one can imagine how very targeted uh, uh, interference uh, and, and malign um, uh, interests or ambitions can... Uh, 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 run amok your whole uh, whole political system. And so with regard to corruption, with regard to government infighting and Montenegro's journey now successful into NATO, but also its ongoing effort for EU integration, how do those issues play out? Exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, obviously we're not there yet when it comes to uh, building our institutions, uh, you know, eradicating uh, corruption, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, of course, one can argue that no country in the world is is fully immune or protected from from corruption. Corruption always finds its its ways huh, to, to 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 work it out somehow. But again, I'm I'm going back to the quality of institutions, which is very important. Uh, uh, you know, firewall from from those m- m- malign 
destructive forces which operate in, in every every society. Well, in Montenegro, it is evolving, but it's also still ruled by a leader who, in one position or another, has essentially ruled the country for 30 years now. And there's a large percentage of Montenegro's population that have never known a time without Milo Djokanovic at the helm of government. And so how do you work toward EU integration when you still have some of those old guards in power? Well, I mean, but yeah, he's, he's, he's now in the position of a president. President, according to our constitution, has very much limited, uh, uh, very much limited authorities, and his term expires next year. Uh, so, uh, it, it was probably also uh, Djukanovic's ability to uh, uh, adjust to politically evolve uh, 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 as time passed by. Uh, even from 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 late nineties, when 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 he picked the westernization road, he has been on that road. Uh, one can argue that foreign policy was very much uh, uh, aligned to that ambition, but internal policy suffered from uh, deformations uh, uh, of of different kinds, uh, inability to complete the, the the rule of law system and so on. It was my government that opened accession talks for the EU. Uh, and uh, in the course of the following years, we managed to open, uh, and not only my government, but government after uh, uh, the one I left, uh, managed to open all the negotiating chapters with the EU. And that's still an accomplishment. Fine, one can argue, well, but that's only half, uh, half of the road and so on. But, you know, uh, it, it's complex. It tough. Uh, the, now the focus on, on rule of law is much stronger than it uh, uh, used to be in case of some other enlargements. So you want to make sure that a country uh, really deserves uh, uh, and, uh, that, that uh, invitation to, to join EU. On the other hand, you see the complexity of the EU, especially post-Brexit EU. It's also a, a, a compilation of, of, uh, of, of problems, let's put it that way, with some mavericks like in Hungary or, or Poland, actually putting to test some of the validity of some of the key principles on, on which e even EU is based. So, so this, this delay of, of, of uh, enabling new member states is also caused, caused internally by, by some of the challenges even EU faces. So, I, in principle, I agree with ones who say, well, Montenegro has not yet done enough or has uh, been uh, having this, let's say, uh, problem with, with, the, with the quality of our political system for many years. But I mean, let, let's not overdo it. Let, let us not uh, uh, you know, underestimate the, 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 the importance of other, other uh, contributors to, to all this. Um, uh, in a small country like ours, especially now with political changes, uh, our political system will further evolve. Uh, uh, if you ask me as, as a bystander and now uh, 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 watching uh, uh, from outside rather than being a, a part of the inside game, I think uh, uh, today we, we, we see even if some vulnerabilities uh, which are even more visible than a few years back. But I think but let's hope that this is part of the process of, of uh, you know, uh, of, of adjusting to the fact that political uh, systems uh, are based on 
you know, changing, ever-changing governments, ever-changing coalitions, and, and, and so on and so on. Switching gears for a minute, you kind of flicked at this earlier. I want to talk about China. Lithuania has been mm-hmm. embroiled in somewhat of an unlikely confrontation with China in recent months as it attempts to push back on Chinese influence in the tech sphere and the security world. And China's increasing influence in smaller countries around the world, like yours, is becoming a primary topic in foreign policy circles. And so just talk to me a little bit about finding a balance between engaging with China on the one hand, which so many countries believe is imperative, and this is a huge issue in Europe in particular, which is finding that balance between cooperation with China, engaging with China, but also confronting its malign or unfair practices. Mm. Well, what if, if, I mean, talking about China, we're talking about a country or, or a culture that has seen you know, thousands of years of civilization. So the only comparable that belongs to the Western world is uh, if we'd like to, you know, uh, uh, draw our beginnings to, uh, you know, Mesopotamia times or Babylon and, and, and so on. So that, that's a comparison. Uh, and, and I think one of the issues with the Western world is inability uh, of um, this intercultural understanding. Uh, which has actually probably produced uh, the, 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 the situation or the context uh, uh, like it is uh, today. Because probably if you, if you talk to, to, to Chinese leaders or to Chinese people, uh, all of a sudden they will you know, uh, you know, talk about number of mistakes that the West has made or security threats that they feel have been imposed on them and, and this and that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you talk to the Western people, then, I mean, they have obviously their own part of the story and they will uh, 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 put emphasis on some of the classic examples or where uh, those potential uh, time, uh, where potential uh, bombs like, like, uh, you know, the situation of Taiwan or, or uh, uh, you know, Korean Peninsula and, and so on, and also South Chinese Sea and so on, because uh, Western people and Western countries are sometimes too transactional, whereas the Chinese, uh, uh, as you know, their time horizon is much different. Uh, they talk about centuries, whereas we talk about you know years or, or decades. And and th- th- this this fundamental discrepancy somehow needs to be needs to be uh, 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 you know resolved. In order to move move forward, as far as Montenegro is concerned, we've, we've, we've we, you know we've seen that uh, uh, interest, and especially it was last year there was a lot of discussions about whether Montenegro, as a small country, has as uh, uh, is, is, is potential to fall into the that trap because of the because the highway uh, uh, credit that, that the government took from the Chinese Exim Bank. Um, uh, to, to build this high, to build a highway, which is part of the corridor between Montenegro and, and Serbia, you know, decades-long uh, story, which uh, in its first piece uh, started to materialize uh, over the past uh, past few years. You know, back then when the decision was taken, uh, three options were were discussed within the government. One was the American Bechtel company. The other one was, um, uh, you know, classic approach together with European investment in financial institutions. And the third was uh, the Chinese uh, loan. And when three offers were compared, 
the European approach was a lot more gradual in terms of do it piece by piece, uh, you know, gradually. You're not ready. Your fiscal capacity is not there yet to make a, you know, big highway or, or, or right now and so on. Whereas the other two were in principle very much similar. Is it's it was only that the 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 the, the Bechtel's uh, offer was when some figures were compared a lot more expensive. Well, I don't know right now after five or six years whether when you if you draw the line, uh, what I mean uh, how the calculation stands there. But I'm just talking about the the the, um, the logic of of the decision, which was probably not the ideal uh, uh, back then. But right now, when I also hear the stories about the dirt trap, uh, and I was finance minister, so and and, and I pretty much know the structure of our debt. Uh, I mean, repaying this this loan, which is let's say around fifty million dollars uh, uh, or euros per year, compared to you know hundreds of millions of bonds that you need to you know roll over pretty much every year, every two years. Let us be. I mean. Uh, both pragmatic and and rational human beings who try to uh, make best of 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 uh, the responsibility that that we've uh, uh, received from from the people who who, who elected us. So that that's my that's my take. I think the more discussions, the the more honest discussions, the more understanding. I, I think the better. Given the complexity of the of the of this multipolar world, uh, it's obviously not easy, but. You know, whereas Russian position is uh, a bit, uh, uh, you know, a bit more destructive in terms that they would not hesitate, you know, using, you know, their special forces for this and that. You know, it, sometimes I get the feeling that the, the, the Chinese just want to make sure that everybody accepts them, uh, that they are, you know, equal partner in the new world and that uh, people need to discuss. And one of the bright examples was the joint declaration from Glasgow, where the United States and China came together with a with with the with the joint declaration about how to confront the climate change. Uh, that, 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 that's a good example, and I believe we need more more of that. So you do believe that there is a difference between, say, Russia's aggression toward Ukraine and China's aggression toward Taiwan, because something I hear here in Washington often is that the way that the Biden administration and its European allies handle Russia with regard to Ukraine will ultimately send a message to Beijing regarding its own interests in Taiwan. No, no, I didn't say that I, I saw some particular difference. I think globally speaking, I think the approach is different. Uh, but but probably uh, you know uh, the, 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 I mean the same as as uh, uh, Russia holds that Crimea Ukraine should naturally belong or or, or Kiev Rus you know uh, historical story about the the, the the beginnings of the Russian Empire and so on so they probably believe that it it, it naturally belongs into their uh, uh, into their realm so to speak I, I probably to the same extent uh, China believes that Taiwan naturally should belong to to the you know Ch- Chinese uh, uh, state, but you know th- those examples also. And I come from Montenegro. Those examples remind me also on uh, on our situation where many Serb nationalists believe that both I mean Montenegro and uh, and Kosovo should actually belong to 
the big uh, Serbian, you know, state or, or, or greater Serbia realm or, or whatever they they titled it, uh, uh, because in in Serbia there are there, 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 were, there was the beginnings of the church and and uh, important uh, uh, battles of or historical battles were were, were were waged, whereas Montenegro throughout the centuries being uh, pretty much isolated, but also independent and free of the Turkish Empire, the state uh, actually kept the transition and, and uh, kept that uh, uh, you know uh, 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 blaze alive and so on and so on. So it and and you know uh, watching all that from Montenegro, uh, naturally, you know our position is you know we should we should. Yeah, let people determine where they want to live. A lot of food for thought in that final topic, but I feel like we should give the last word to your dog. He seems to have a lot to say. Yeah, yeah, sorry for that. (laughs) I hope hope it didn't distort too much the sound, yes. (laughs) He had some very important views. Obviously, he wanted to share. So dogs are always (laughs) welcome. Former Montenegro Prime Minister Igor Luksic, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Vivian. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You too. Thank you. Okay, joining me now to discuss my conversation with Montenegro's former Prime Minister, Igor Luksic, is Sir Richard Dearlove. So you heard the conversation with the former Prime Minister. Lots to unpack there. But one of the most interesting things that turned into essentially the theme of our discussion was really the similarities that Montenegro experienced in its own pursuit of independence and integration into NATO, which we're seeing now with Ukraine. Um, A lot of similar issues, particularly with regard to its relationship with Russia and how that's evolved. What are your thoughts on some of that, those dynamics and just the country's freeing itself from Russia's nexus and trying to integrate into Europe more? Well, there's, there's a massive difference in scale, obviously. So Montenegro is not Ukraine. And, and that, as it were, gives Montenegro perhaps more room for maneuverability because what happens there is not going to be so consequential to Russia. And although, you know, Montenegro traditionally through its Serbian links has had a close emotional um, relationship with Russia over time, I would say that the relationship between Russia and Ukraine is even closer uh, and historically obviously is much more important to the Russian national identity. So, yeah, there are definitely parallels. Some folks have even told me that Ukraine is an existential matter for Vladimir Putin in some ways. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I mean, people have compared it to the relationship between England and Scotland, for example. Um, And, uh, you know, one has to try to think oneself into the shoes of the Russian leadership uh, to imagine, you know, what they actually feel about Ukraine and the historic links with Ukraine and the fact that, let's say, you know, it's really tied up so closely with the Russian identity that I think it, you know, it does become a difficult issue for the Russians to think and talk about rationally, let's put it like that. But, I mean, the Russians are real chess players and, you know, they're using uh, the opportunities they have. They perceive at the moment a period of weakness, I think, in Western Europe, a period of political change. And I think that uh, Putin uh, is seeking to 
let's say, re- try to recover some of the influence uh, and, and some of the losses that Russia suffered in that period of enormous sort of disintegration and weakness at the end of the Cold War. Um, but I, if you actually look at this historically, which I think is important as well, Russia is acting in the historical character. Um, I mean, it, it, it has always interfered on its periphery to ensure that its neighbors were strategically weak or that it exercised strong influence over regimes so that they didn't, as it were, present a problem for Russia. And, you know, the history of this is long established. It's not necessarily communism or how the Soviet Union behaved. It's how Russia's behaved uh, within its area of influence since the time of Ivan the Terrible. I mean, you can go right back, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. And Russia's been doing this for so long that there's nothing new about it. I want to actually tap into your expertise, something that is new, and that as you've been talking about this historical context and just the way that Russia plays chess, one of the differences, and my colleagues and I have been writing about this in recent weeks, is the technology that's changing. In particular, satellites are watching every move that the Russians are making right now. So how does that complicate matters or not? Well, it it complicates matters because, as it were, it raises the tension. I mean, we can we can track their every move. Um, do you know to what extent do we respond to that? Um, I mean, I think that Putin is trying to put himself in a position where uh, his behaviour militarily on the ground can influence you know whatever forthcoming negotiation and conversations there are. You know, there's going to be a meeting between. Um, Biden and him to talk about this. Uh, the EU are sort of nervous that, you know, this is a, a, a sort of Yalta agreement which will leave out the Europeans. Uh, I mean, that's interesting in itself because, you know, the EU doesn't really have any geopolitical capability in my view. It has very little geopolitical capability. But, I, I mean, I think that Putin probably understands that the West in its current um, configuration, and I include NATO in that, is not going to go to war over Ukraine. Um, I don't think Russia is going to go to war over Ukraine. But what Russia is looking for, you know, is a guarantee, um, some sort of security guarantee about what it considers to be its own area of influence. I mean, some people have drawn some very interesting parallels between, let's say, the Cuban crisis in the 60s. My own personal view on this, <laughs> uh, which might surprise you, is okay, Ukraine's free to make its own strategic decisions, but uh, there's no way that we should welcome it into NATO. I, it, historically, it's a hinge between East and West. That's its geopolitical fate. And unless there was severe political change in Russia, um, you know, we should treat it as such. It can have a close relationship with NATO. But I think it's too provocative for the Russians to pull it into the NATO alliance. And what would the benefit be to the West? It would be um, negative because Russia would become that much more nervous, that much more aggressive, that much more difficult to deal with. 
it kind of then raises this question, and I asked Mr. Luksic this as well, is, okay, fine. Putin says that expansion of NATO into Ukraine is a red line for him. There really doesn't seem to be a growing sense that Ukraine is imminently going to be joining NATO. And the U.S. has made clear that it has no intention of sending troops to defend Ukraine. And so what is this red line that we're talking about? Putin says, okay, there are forces training Ukrainian troops, U.S. and European forces training Ukrainian troops. That has crossed the red line. And that for him is an expansion of NATO. We're parsing words now, but if Ukraine is never going to be admitted into NATO, at least not in the near future, then what is he so worried about? Why does he have troops at the border with Ukraine? Is it just to intimidate yeah, he's not worried about anything. He's trying to, as it were, reassert the Russian dominance over, you know, areas which the Russians feel are, you know, strictly within their area of influence. Um, and and I, you know, I mean, they're they're playing a tough game. They're taking a risk, and I think the risk is is, is one, you know, of escalation where something goes wrong. I mean, I think you also got to look at this a little bit through the optic of Russian domestic politics, um, because uh, Putin's been in office a very long time. I mean, he, you know, he's turned into a latter day czar essentially. Um, but you know, bear in mind, he's had to lock up Navalny. Um, there are signs, you know, when Navalny was was out and about politically active, that he had a pretty strong following, especially amongst the Russian intelligentsia. And Putin, I, I think, is 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 partly playing to a domestic audience to demonstrate that he's that traditional strong nationalist Russian leader. Um, but I think the danger for the West is if Putin, uh, as it were, sees his position in Russia as seriously weakening, then he might do something excessive and dangerous. Um, but, the, you know, there, there are various complexities. It, it, it's not just uh, we, we it, it's not just about sort of East West. We tend, I think, to underestimate the political problems that Russian leaders have internally. And I think uh, Putin has uh, certain uncertainties. And, and, you know, the Russian economy, too, is not in great shape. I mean, he, he's in a pretty bad place. They've had a slight respite because the price of oil and gas has gone up again. And therefore, you know, as a commodity economy, they're doing better than they were. But you know, this dreadful lack of... Um, uh, foreign investment, lousy demographics, um, uh, you know, declining um, rural population, a, a lot of uh, uh, deprivation. Um, Russia's not necessarily in such a good place at the moment. They say that one of the biggest lessons they've learned is how Russia uses disinformation and this kind of meddling to disrupt and to cause chaos in the countries that are trying to pull away from its sphere of influence. And so you saw that in Montenegro big time, and you see that in Ukraine now. So can you talk, Sir Richard, a little bit about how Russia, how we've seen it in the U.S. and the U.K., you've seen it all over Europe, but in these countries in particular, how does Russia use these tactics? Well, Russia's very well equipped to, as it were, work from the inside, particularly, you know, in 
countries where there's a significant pro-Russian community, where there is significant sympathy, you know, for Russia's objectives. So if, for example, you take, um, you know, the special services in a country like Montenegro, you can bet your bottom dollar they're thoroughly penetrated um, by the SPR. Um, there are people in significant places who, you know, may purport to go along with whatever Montenegrin political developments are, are happening, but retain their very close links with the Russians. I mean, the Russians have, have developed over time. And I mean, we're talking about, you know, going back to the time of the NKVD and, 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 and the period after the Russian Revolution, you know, very sophisticated um, intelligence and security apparatus, and 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 they, they've they've learned very quickly, you know, how to use technology and let's say social media to their benefit. Um, so they they are a very formidable opponent, and they demonstrate these powers. For example, you know, in the Baltics when they've had problems there in Georgia, you know, they switch on their full power and. Um, these countries, these small countries, these small players, and I mean Ukraine, relatively speaking, uh, you know, there's no way it can contest the sort of full force of Russian power. So, um, and you know, we and then we've seen it practiced globally in relation to the U.S. elections, in relation here to the vote on um, the future membership of the EU, uh, all of these areas. I, I don't think actually they changed the results in elections. Um, far from it. Uh, they've just sort of muddied the water. But in smaller countries, which are closer to them, where they have much more purchase and influence, you can see that they have an immediate uh, effect. One of the interesting things that I've been writing about a lot and a number of my colleagues in Washington, too, is just the strain of domestic pressures that are taking place, certainly here in the United States, but also across Europe with the pandemic now completing its second year and just the economic strains that have resulted from the pandemic and a number of other things. I mean, inflation is soaring here in the U.S. What is the appetite, even if there is an invasion, if we get to that point for European countries and the U.S. to rescue Ukraine when there's so many domestic pressures at home? Well, I think you make a strong point, and I don't think there is any appetite. Um, you know, it's not just post-pandemic. Um, you know, it's broader than that. And, and uh, I mean... The, I think the international community, I think Russia would have to pay a very high price if it does intervene militarily in Ukraine, but the price would be largely economic over time. And, uh, you know, its relationship with, with Germany, um, which is very important to Russia economically, would be severely prejudiced. I mean, it's obvious relations with other European countries, but Germany is by far the most consequential. Um, I don't. Yes, I, 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 I don't think there's any European uh, or American appetite to fight a European war. You know, even a conventional war. I mean, let's hope it would remain conventional. Um, you know, to. Uh, to save Ukraine. It's just, frankly, it's just not going to happen. And I think Putin probably understands that. But he also understands that the price for Russia economically, and let's face it, it's, uh, they're not in great economic shape, 
would probably be far too high. Relations have got worse, far worse. Um, and you know, we need putting we need to start putting them back together again. No one gains um, from the sort of tensions that are being generated. And of course, as I've said and keep emphasizing, the chances of miscalculation are, are hugely high at the moment. And of course, the other element in all of this, you know, is gas prices and the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, and the fact that you know Russia knows that it has got a very powerful card to play. Um, and it's certainly not going to be able to uh, sell its gas unless there's a sort of de-escalation. Uh, and I mean, there's disagreement, I think, inside the, the new German government. Certainly, in, interestingly, the Greens, as far as I understand, are in favor of taking a very tough line on Nord Stream. It's been fascinating to see how the new chancellor, Scholz, has come straight out and said that he will be cutting the pipeline. Well, because it's, you know, this this takes us really into the realms of the German economic relationship with Russia, which, of course, is miles closer than people generally understand. And although I think Scholz is, is concerned about that and, and probably favors opening. If he, if he had a free hand, the Nord Stream. But the Greens and his coalition are definitely opposed to it. That's pretty clear. Um, so, you know, you've, you've got a period of quite significant political complexity coming up because you've got this new German government and we don't really know, you know, the colour of its money yet uh, and how it's going to play internationally. And then, of course, You've got a presidential election in France as well, with Macron certainly beginning to look vulnerable. Um, so, and then of course you've got the UK. Uh, I mean, the, the, uh, Europe's leading military power, which is the UK. Okay, not 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 reinforcing its membership of NATO, but leaving the EU. So, it, it's a good moment for the Russians to probe to see whether there are opportunities for recovery of some of their influence in areas which they consider, you know, their chasse garde. I mean, I'm much, much more worried about China uh, in the medium to longer term than I am about Russia. I mean, Russia is a, is a, is a declining power. It, it shows all the evidence of a post-imperial power misbehaving. It's got the capability to cause huge problems in Europe. But if you're taking a 20, 30-year view, um, Russia is, is, is going to be a much lesser issue. And in a way, I think Putin realizes, you know, maybe this is the last throw of the dice for, for Russia. He's identified some great short-term opportunities to increase Russian influence. Uh, and he knows, you know, the Chinese dragon is breathing down Europe's neck and also to an extent down Russia's neck. I mean, you know, they're, they're allies of convenience for the moment. Um, but I just don't believe in the longer term that that alliance means anything at all, really. I, I think China's intentions are deeply strategic. Um, it's about them, you know, displacing the United States as the leading superpower over a long time frame. And the Chinese are long-term thinkers and good strategists. And I think that the US 
in taking on that threat needs to be subtle, needs to think hard about how it's going to cope with that situation. I mean, I'm reasonably confident that the US will not be displaced by China, but that's a separate discussion. Um, But the next decade will define how that plays out. Uh, And I, I think China... Is 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 a much greater challenge. The Soviet, I should <laughs> I shouldn't say the Soviet Union. The, the post-Soviet Russia is a classic post-imperialist troublemaker with significant assets which it can deploy um, to its own advantage. But I mean, the economics are just so obvious. And you know, the myth that. Russia is, you know, surrounded by NATO. Uh, I mean, it, it, this is old thinking, which the Russian general staff just can't get rid of. But if you take the, the massive one, well, Russia has the longest borders in the world. I think only a 16th of their borders at border length, do they actually juxtapose with NATO, um, NATO members. Um, but but Russia just can't escape this thinking that somehow the West is 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 trying to isolate and surround it. it it's rubbish. But we we've got to break through that Russian thinking, and the best way to do this is to talk to them. I'm not sure that Biden or Biden's team are capable of this, but let's make they make some progress. That's it for this episode of One Decision. I'm Vivian Salama. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and get in touch. What decisions have impacted your lives and your part of the world? Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at One Decision Pod. And we're on Facebook at One Decision Podcast. See you next time.